Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, beautiful wine lovers. It's nearly Christmas, 7th of December, 2020, I think. I speak for everyone when I say we all need a little bit of sparkle and magic. And today, hopefully, I'm going to add a little bit extra because the theme of today is chilly, but even more exciting for me, I am talking about my winery, Ventiscaro Wine Estate. So although you may know me just from these podcasts, or perhaps you're one of my Wine Society members or I've done a masterclass for you, my day job is talking about the incredible wines of Chile. So let's just talk Chile for a second. Chile is so unique in the fact that it's this long, skinny country. In fact, it's 4,270 kilometres long, meaning that it has a multitude of different climates. It has all different type of soil types. And then what makes it very exciting is the fact that being so skinny, we're talking about 170 kilometres wide, and in fact, around 80 kilometres wide in the smallest part. You have coastal mountains and then you have the Andes Mountains on the east. So anything planted by the coast, you have this incredible cooling effect from the Humboldt Current, which is this cold wind that kind of gets sucked up from the Antarctic in the south. This all gets sucked in, there's lots of fog, there's cloud cover, so the grapes on the coast are very, very fresh. You also have the Andes Mountains, which actually, planting up into the foothills here is still something that hasn't really been explored too much, so something to look out for. But again, cold breezes coming over those Andes Mountains, cooling down the grapes so you can get some really elegant styles and then you have the entre cordilleras so between the mountains which again are much hotter more fertile land in many places but it also really depends on if you're in the north or in you're in the south because in the south it's much colder starts getting wetter even more slightly european in style whereas generally most of the wine grown regions in chile are mediterranean climate so nice and warm during the summer what makes Chile even more unique is it is the only country that has not got phylloxera. So phylloxera I've discussed in other podcasts. So if you don't know what phylloxera is, do go and check it out. It's this evil little louse that came over from America in the 1800s and basically attacked all the roots of our European vines. So our species Vitus vinifera basically devastated all the vineyards. Now, thankfully, we had already sent those vines out to new world countries such as Chile, Argentina, Australia. So they were already growing in other places. We then discovered we could bring back these vines and graft them onto American rootstocks, which is another species. So those rootstocks could handle phylloxera and we were still able to have the fruit from the Vetus vinifera species. So thankfully we made it work. So phylloxera has traveled all over the world as people did, as plants as vines as things got moved and sold around the world and the one country it has not come into is Chile and that is because of the four natural boundaries so those Andes mountains we've talked about 
the coast. Down in the south, you have Patagonia, or the ice glaciers. And up in the north, you have the Atacama Deserts, or this sandy and salty, as you'll find out, soils. So they act as these incredible boundaries that just won't let phylloxera in, which means Chile is the one country that can have its own original rootstocks. Now, talking of rootstocks, places further down in the south, like Maule and Itata especially, are filled with old vines. And when we say old vines, it's totally normal for some old, gnarly 200-year-old vines. So some of the oldest vines in the world are in Chile. People are going much further down south to plant vineyards now. The furthest down south is an area called Chile Chico, which is well into Patagonia. And this is 46.32 degrees on the 46th parallel and is officially the most southern vineyard. It's not a commercial planting. We can't buy the wine yet, but it is the most southern. And Chile certainly are pushing the boundaries. Now talking of boundaries and extreme viticulture, I'm super proud to be working with the one winery who commercially makes wines in the Atacama Desert. This is the driest desert on earth. This is a crazy project. This is the most northern vineyards that have been planted that actually commercially make some wine. There are a few little places in the Atacama Desert where people are planting or doing experiments that are further north but this is one that you can actually purchase, that you can actually buy. So pour yourself a glass of wine. Well, not if you're driving. Um, And let me tell you about Ventiscaro Wine Estates. Established in 1998, so they are still a very young winery. Family owned and owned by Don Gonzalez Vial. He started in the 1950s, literally with a few chickens. And I love that. He wasn't born into money. He bought a few chickens, that gave him enough money to buy more chickens. Then that turned into buying some pigs and some other animals. And basically has one of the largest agricultural businesses now in South America. And so when it got to 1998, he'd done everything else but wine. And that is how it started. He bought 600 hectares right off the bat and was in the newspapers as El Hombre Loco, the crazy guy, just because why would anyone buy that amount of land when you know nothing about planting vines? But if you have a little bit of money and you can hire the right people, and he started working with fantastic people. One of the best terroir specialists in South America and probably even the world is a guy called Pedro Para. Have a look who Pedro Para is and who he's worked with and you'll realise he was an amazing asset to really help decide where to plant things. Now, the winery has grown and grown. There's more than just 600 hectares now, but the whole idea is about pushing the boundaries, being innovative and trying new things. One of those projects is planting in the Atacama Desert. I'm going to chat with my winemaker in a second all about that. Ventiscara Wine Estates owns vineyards in Casablanca, in Leda, in Maipo, in the Apalta Valley. Look up these regions. They are the main regions of Chile. Something else to be super proud of is one of the winemakers you may know, John Duval. John Duval, for 29 years, was the chief winemaker of Penfolds Grange. If you don't know what Penfolds Grange is, it's about, I don't know, £500 or so on release these days. Uh, One of the most expensive wines to come out of Australia and also one of the most iconic. So once he decided to stop working at Penfolds, we managed to grab him and keep him. Originally, we wanted him just as a consultant, but he loved the land so much and some of the areas where we were planting that he wanted to make some of his own wines. So if you would like to taste some of John Duval's work with our chief winemaker, 
winemaker, I might add, Felipe Tosso, who is an award-winning winemaker in Chile. The two of them do a fantastic project at the higher end of our wines. So look out for the Pangea Syrah, the Vertice Carmenet Syrah blend and the Enclave, which is a Cabernet Sauvignon blend. So my guest today is my winemaker. He is a cool climate specialist winemaker. So that is your Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blancs. He has studied all over the world. In France, he worked for the Castel Group. In America, he worked for Kendall Jackson. He's worked in Switzerland as well. And then, of course, returning back to Chile, he's worked at one of the biggest wineries that most of you have probably heard of, Concha y Toro, and even set up and planned the whole beginnings of a cool climate winery, Amaña. Thankfully, we have him full-time and have had him permanently since 2006. He knows these vineyards inside and out, and he's going to tell you all about the extreme viticulture and the craziness of the vineyards in the driest desert on earth, Nout. Thank you so much, Alejandro, for joining us today. My winemaker, this is very exciting. Thank you for the invitation. Proud to be here. Yay! We were going to talk all things wine geeky now. So I have to ask you, because actually you've probably told me, but I've forgotten. <laughs> Tell all the lovely people listening. <laughs> As a winemaker, what got you into winemaking in the first place? Um, not, not really an experience from wine, because I actually understood that the winemaking was uh, my passion a little bit late in my life. Okay. But the thing was that uh, for more than three or four years during the university, I was trying to decide to be in an area where I could create something. That was mm -hmm. my, my base. Okay. And uh, actually, the other areas of the agriculture engineer didn't have that passion and possibility to create as winemaking. So mm. I think that that was uh, the most important reason why I dedicated my life for wine. Were you drinking wine at the time and enjoying wine? Always. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always. Well, you come from down in the south of Chile, don't you, where I guess, you know, cooking and food is very important, right? Yeah, actually, um, my city is just close to next to the, the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of seafood that I always have been in touch with. Mm -hmm. and, and also in my family, they used to love cooking. So I love mm -hmm. cooking as well. So seafood and cooking, it's a very good match that need wines at the table. Yeah, well, maybe that is why you have gone down the route of more cool climate grape varieties, right? Better for seafood. You are right. You are right, maybe. <laughs> it, all, it all makes sense now. Okay, so I've already mentioned to people listening that, you know, you've done some amazing work in France, in Switzerland, which I think is super, super cool, and in America. So when you went around traveling and learning with other wineries, did you pick up some interesting tips or was there things that you were able to bring back to Chile as a winemaker? I mean, that uh, in a 50%, that I think that that's all about. When mm -hmm. you go outside the country as a... If you wish to call it like that as a flying winemaker, yeah. uh, the idea is to get that experience that all that winemaking techniques that maybe you won't see in your own country mm -hmm. so that you can know how to make wines finally in a better way in the future. Mm. But every single country has a, his own uh, or different techniques that you can get on your experience. 
and sure. then use it afterwards in your winemaking life. So yes, uh, definitely every single experience outside was a tremendous experience in my winemaking life. Do you think that it was very different, the winemaking techniques in Switzerland, for instance, compared to France, or both being European, were they similar? Was there surprises there? Uh, yeah, well, definitely where I was working in Switzerland, it was 95% cool climate varieties. Okay. was uh, uh, nothing to do of what I did in the south of France, where okay. I did, yes, Cab, Syrah, and Merlot. Mm-hmm. Definitely the techniques that you use in cool climate varieties, mainly white wines, are different from red wines. And then also in the south of France, where you have Mediterranean varieties, I used to heat and, and warm climate. Uh-huh. So uh, definitely you use different techniques and the way to make wines, the way how winemakers can see the wine is completely different. So we're talking about grape varieties. What's in your opinion one of the hardest grape varieties to work with? Um, well, uh, <laughs> the most difficult variety definitely is the one that steals my heart every time. Pinot Noir? Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> you know already. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe other people don't know. Pinot Noir, I always say, is the, the kind of grape variety yeah, in harvest. You I mean, pick it up and it bursts in your hands often. It's, it's so, so challenging uh, mm-hmm. from the vineyard till the bottle. When you are in the vineyard, you have to pick the grapes at the right time. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you can get green character or in the other side, you are overcooked. Mm-hmm. So the window to collect those grapes are, is small in general, and it will give the personality to the wine at the end of the day. So that's a very important moment for that variety. Then okay. where you, when you are making the fermentation inside, you don't want to over-extract those very sensitive and like elegant kind of grapes. So you have to be over the fermentation every single day, maybe three, four, five times a day, oh, uh, wow, tasting okay. the wine. So you can really extract what you'd like to extract and not something else. Mm-hmm. And then when you finish that, you have to take out the thick leaves and go into barrels so that they have that correct reductive oxidation kind of character to get mm-hmm. the balance with all the time that the wine will be in the barrels, maybe a okay. year. So just to pause for a second, what you're saying is because Pinot Noir is going to be in barrel for a decent amount of time, you actually want it to be slightly more oxidative to survive? Is that what you're saying? There's, a, there's something, because that's a very important point that you are touching. Mm. The Pinot Noir in the beginning is very reductive or can be very reductive. Okay. But then when you take out the wine from the thick leaves, after mm-hmm. a couple of months uh, being in the barrel, it start or can start an oxidative environment that can kill the wine. So mm-hmm. you can have to be over the wine every day so that you don't get into that oxidative condition. Mm, Otherwise, okay. you lose character, aromas, flavors, and at the end of the day, you won't get the quality that you were expecting for. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that makes sense. And then, once you've taken it out of barrel and you've put it in bottle, then you can calm down and breathe again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. And then, you know that for all varieties, for all wines, bottling process can be very stressful. And uh, okay. that's why you have to try to treat the wine when it's going inside the bottle with 100% of care. So that after the bottling process, you still have to wait for a couple of months or at at least six months so that everything goes around and and balanced before final consumers open the bottle. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of a special kind of variety. (laughs) (laughs) Special it is. So we're talking obviously just about Pinot Noir and that kind of process from all the way from harvesting 
through to bottling, there's a hell of a lot more processes and things you can do in the winery. What is your favorite part of the winemaking process? Um, I think that that answer is related to what attracted to me for winemaking because okay. it has to be with the, every single part of the process. Oh, every no, that's cheating. Every single part is challenging. I'm, okay. I'm being diplomatic, Janina. <laughs> Don't I be have diplomatic. To be polite. <laughs> I mean, vintage. Uh, vintage is a challenge. It's always dynamic. You are moving okay. every every time. It can be very tiring, but at the same time, is um, it gives you a lot of energy every every day. Mm-hmm. How many hours are you working in the harvest? Because you basically don't get any sleep. You say goodbye to your kids and your your <laughs> wife, right? And then you for say six months. <laughs> come on, six months, not quite. But you say for a few weeks, it's like yeah, see you later. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a, it's an average of 12 hours minimum, maybe 14. That's okay. that's the average. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Every day. Because, uh, yeah, in wine making, it's, there's a very important moment for each um, uh, variety to be fermented is the opportunity of the work. Mm-hmm. If you have to make a pump over now and you don't make it, and the result to do it tomorrow is not the same. Mm-hmm. You lose the opportunity. The okay. opportunity of the work is very, very important in the success of the result. Mm-hmm. So you must be there every time. And then when it passed the time and you have to taste the wine every month after it, it had been in barrel, it's always very nice to be how the wine is evolving in a positive way so that uh, you have to be clear in the moment that you make the decision to take out the wines out of the barrels mm-hmm. to go into bottles. Mm-hmm. So every time is nice. And if you ask me, when <laughs> you have the bottle at the table, Yes. A nice Pinot Noir bottle with a Margaret de Canard or mm-hmm. something similar. Oh, you love your I mean, duck, don't a, you? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing moment as well. Perfect pairing. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned about you have to be there during harvest for every second because as an example, if you don't do pumping over in the moment that's right, the next day you don't get the result. What could happen just in terms of pumping over? So I know that pumping over often is about extracting a bit of colour, maybe taking more tannins and also maybe moving around the air. So what could yeah. be the difference between day one and doing it and day two and doing it? That's a, well, yeah, it is not difficult to answer that, but... Uh... If I'm in the beginning or in the middle of the fermentation and I don't do the pump over, yeast mm-hmm. uh, is going to continue fermenting, transforming okay. the sugar in alcohol. Mm-hmm. So if I do the pump over tomorrow or after tomorrow, the environment will be much warmer and with much more alcohol than the day ah, before. Okay. When you extract then with more alcohol, you can get some bitterness or mm. other kind of bad characteristics. So okay. you lost the opportunity to do it in the right moment. But I suppose something like Pinot Noir, that would be far more important because you're trying to get a much more elegant, fresher elegant style. Elegant wine. Right. Yeah. B- but maybe with something like Cabernet Sauvignon, you might want to do it the second day when there's more alcohol, perhaps. Would that be that's fair to why, say? That's why there are some varieties that are much more easy to make than Pinot Noir. So just tell us before we move on, what is the easiest grape variety for you? <laughs> Don't be diplomatic. Um, yeah, maybe um, could be Syrah or Carmenere. Okay, Syrah, Carmenere. Ah, interesting that you say Carmenere. Carmenere, for anyone who doesn't realise, is Chile's great variety. Mm. There's a whole story on Carmenere that we can yeah, go into at some point. Variety. It is. But that is something, you know, that I suppose 20 years ago, Chilean winemakers, because that 
the wine industry was still just learning and growing. That's why you guys started doing a lot of flying winemaking, right? Carmen was actually a bit of a finickety, a bit of a fussy grape variety, I thought. But do you feel like now understanding how Carmen is, it's much easier to manage? Definitely, because uh, remember that before in the past, Carmen was in between the vine of the Merlot. So Mm -hmm. all was fermented together. Mm-hmm. And they had a completely different moment to be picked. Yes. So normally when the Merlot grapes were picked in between the, the vineyard of uh, this variety, there were this plant of Carmenet that used to ripe like a month after. Yeah. So you have uh, sometimes green characters. Mm-hmm. After we separate uh, those varieties in, in individual blocks, we understood that the right moment to pick the Carmenet grapes were much later than the Merlot. Mm-hmm. So finally, we started to make a better wine for the Merlot and for the Carmenet. Yeah, no, so it's interesting. And anyone who doesn't know about Carmenet, it was discovered in 1994. Actually, ironically, 24th yeah. of November. So we've just missed Carmenet Day. So go get a bottle anyway and pretend it's <laughs> yeah, Carmenet it was, Day. Uh, it's birthday. Couple it's, of yeah, we just days missed ago. the birthday. But, um, you know, it is pretty amazing that for so many years, so for a hundred years, a hundred years, because this great variety came from France, people thought it was Merlot, yeah. Chilean Merlot. So it's a very cool story. It was re-resurrected. It wasn't, wasn't really loved in France because it was a Bordeaux variety that didn't ripe well. Remember that there's a couple of showers and rains that comes in between the harvest in, a couple? in, in Bordeaux. <laughs> <laughs> or three, four, five, or six. Uh, we yeah. say here that that's the place where the, the weather tells the winemaker when to pick, and not the winemaker mm-hmm. is the one that picks when he wants. So at that time, in, in the old days in France, and they picked the Carmenere that was green, yeah. and they didn't like this green character. Uh, the thing that was that Carmenere wasn't planted in the right side of the world. But in Chile, there's perfect environment and weather for having that variety here. Yeah, it found its home, hasn't it? So more people do need to drink Carmenere. Okay, so I want to ask you, what has surprised you the most about being a winemaker? I think that the opportunity that this job has given to me to travel around the world, showing the wines Mm. and knowing, understanding different cultures, that has been very, very surprising for the um, hard of the UK and American market to the very deep Asian countries. Mm -hmm. That has been an amazing journey. This is the joys of wine, though. This is why I'm in the wine industry, because it is wine, food, culture, travel. They all go together. (laughs) Okay, so tell me then, what is a normal day in the life of a winemaker when your harvest is over, when you're not doing 12 to 14 hours a day, you're not worrying about fermentation, and once everything is in the barrels, everything is just relaxing and chilling out. What do you do when you go in there in the well, morning? Well, separating the 10 or 12 weeks that we are abroad because of traveling. Mm-hmm. When we are here at the winery, a normal day is tasting wines, making mm-hmm. blends, mm, um, okay, blending. planifying what you are going to blend probably the next month. Okay. Keep, keep in touch every day with uh, your team so that they can have all the information to, to do a good job mm-hmm. in terms of planification, in terms of how to make a, a blend with all the details that the winemaker would like to have. Yeah, I mean, also some numbers as well, because we have to be over numbers as well in terms of... Uh, the boring side. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the legal, the legal side. side. That, uh, 
you must do because uh, rentability is part of very important part of sustainability mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It's a pillar of the sustainability as well. So mm-hmm. we have to work with that every day as well. And from November until the harvest, in the November, December, one day every two weeks to the vineyard to see how mm-hmm. the bunches are evaluating. Mm-hmm. And then middle of January, once a week, definitely uh, in the vineyard. I remember when, you might remember, when I was in Chile in 2018 and I was in the mm-hmm. tasting room and my favorite part of my experience, because I did a lot of different aspects of the winemaking yeah, process, yeah, was for the Pangea, which is, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a fantastic Shiraz, one of our icon wines in Ventiscara comes from the Apalto Vineyards. Mm. And what I found fascinating was we had taken lots of different samples from lots of different yeah. barrels and some were free run juice, some was first pressed, some was second pressed and third pressed. So if anyone who doesn't know what I mean, that is whilst they're still on the skins. So for every different press, you're obviously yeah. going to get a little, more, little bit more tannins. And we sat exactly. in the tasting room and we played around with the different samples the different yeah compounds of the wine and to decide what percentage of kind of first pressed Syrah Mm-hmm. was going to be blended with second and third. And actually, ironically, the one that I like the most you picked, so I like to pretend that for anyone drinking the 2018 <laughs> Pangea when it comes out, that was me, I did that, Alejandro did nothing. <laughs> no, no other winemakers did a thing, that was all me. But for me, I think that's fascinating, playing around with the same grape variety from the same vineyard, but pressed in a different way that some are slightly more perfumed and concentrated, some a bit more tannic yeah. and a little bit drier, and then choosing how do you make your final product that's so fascinating part of the wine making i love blending because as you said you have different compounds it's like a painting mm. so that a little bit more artistical artisan part of your soul is going out when you blend yeah from one side you have the outdoor kind of style of wine that you would like to impress in your in your wine Mm-hmm. But then you also have to also what is the um, the final consumer's preference. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of big challenge when you are sitting at the blending table to with all this A915 kind of compounds to see what is coming out of that moment. I think it's one of the most interesting part of the winemaking. Ha ha ha, I got it. That's your favorite. You said you were trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> now we know everyone. We heard it here first. Okay, so did you hear about a Spanish winery. This is earlier this year, probably only a month ago or so. One of their tanks, 50,000 litres of red wine just spilled out all over the floor there was a video of this tank just oh did you did you hear about this yeah and um it happens yeah it does it does happen this is poor bodega vita Venus, i think who this happened to yeah. and i just and thought the, that happened at the winery yeah this happened at the winery just recently just this year and i just thought you must have had some pretty impressive and sad stories or disaster stories happen at the winery tell me something that... yeah uh, i mean <laughs> we have a couple of those throwouts not as big as that one <laughs> what but happened with you? You have to remember what happened in Chile in 2010. Mm, yes, sadly. The earthquake. Yeah. If you imagine that 50,000 liters is a big volume, you can't imagine what happened in wineries in 2010 after the earthquake. Yeah. Because southern 
millions of millions of liters were threw out to the floor. The earthquake affected more of the southern areas of Chile, right? Like Maule and Itata, or was it actually no, no everywhere? I'm completely wrong. Far. You know that the Chile is very long and narrow, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yes. 500 kilometers long. That was where the, the earthquake was. Oh, gosh. Wow. Millions it's not, millions it, it wasn't a spot, a specific spot where was the, the earthquake. The earthquake was 500 kilometers long. Hmm. So there were many wineries from Maule till uh, areas near Santiago that were affected. Goodness me. And not, not only tanks, but barrel rooms that were a complete disaster. All were fall down to the floor. Hmm. All the, the barrels were cracked. The high quality wine was uh, down the floor. Wow. Well, so for anybody tasting 2010, just remember how lucky you are to have some 2010 liquid because yep. I imagine the percentage. <laughs> do you happen to know what percentage of loss there was in Chile that year, just off the top of your head? 80 million litres. Wow, that is shocking. Shocking, really. So what fun, slightly less dramatic stories have happened in the winery then? Maybe not throwing the, the wine to the floor, but maybe <laughs> if you have in a, in a tank that is not well identified, mm-hmm. You have a white wine. Okay. And then you put it and you blend it inside with the red wine. Oops. And you won't get a rosé wine. (laughs) You do, but it's an illegal one. (laughs) (laughs) So that may have happened once or twice, huh? Yeah, it happens. Uh, The long time that we haven't had that uh, mistake, but uh, it happens. And it had happened here at the winery as well. Yeah. And you're not telling me my favourite story, which I know about, which I'm trying to squeeze out of you, about a blocked pump. Come on. Tell everybody about the fun <laughs> yeah, blocked well, pump Well, that was story. many years ago. Um, <laughs> we were trying to get grapes from uh, Pinot Noir to an open tank uh, so that we had to fill the, the tank from, from the top. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to cool those grapes, so I, I wanted to pass through a, a heat exchanger. To okay. get yeah, down the temperature exchanger. of the outside. Yeah, on a heat okay. changer. But mm-hmm. get down the temperatures of 24, 25 degrees. That is the environment temperature outside. Okay. To 7, 8 degrees, 8 Celsius degrees to make a cold soaking, a cold maceration okay. for a week before starting the alcoholic fermentation. Okay. So we had to pass through the heat exchanger that was very thin. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the, the same wide of the, of the hose. So we had to go in that heat exchanger that was mm-hmm. very thin. So when <laughs> the grapes arrived to the pump, uh-huh. it was completely blocked. <laughs> and there was a, a girl that was watching this and it was in front of the pump. <laughs> and the pump was running, but it was, wasn't going outside the heat exchanger. <laughs> and suddenly, poof. The, the grapes de-blocked and poof. <laughs> and the girl was... And remember that the grapes has a lot amount of sugar. So uh-huh. she was from the top till the feet completely <laughs> washed with sweet juice. Uh-huh. And he just went outside trying to, to move the less <laughs> as possible. But she was completely washed with this uh-huh. sweet juice. Oh, she had to change yeah. all the clothes. Uh, I mean, it was very, very funny. Well, you know, they say that wine is good for your skin. So I imagine that was quite a good uh, <laughs> facial, facial scrub for her, right? Yeah, wine, not juice. 
okay mm, yeah but that is brilliant right so um enough of winemaking let's talk about this incredible vineyard site that ventiscara has up in the atacama desert now did you bring a tara chardonnay with you where you're sat or is it just me with a glass of wine just you darling oh just me oh well don't worry about but it i know the wine i don't i know the wine for sure so i'll test you I, i've got it in front of me i'm, I'm gonna drink it now and you're gonna tell me all about it so tell everyone listening why are you crazy enough to have ever Ever thought that you could make wine in the Atacama Desert, <laughs> the driest I mean, desert on earth? Oof, Why? The, the driest desert on earth. That's the place where the NASA go and make the trials with the Pathfinder uh, to see how it's going to work afterwards in, mm-hmm. in Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that has been an amazing journey because we still enjoy every time that we have the, the possibility to go there. Yeah. And then after, when we have to ferment those grapes and drink the wine at the end of the day. The Atacama Desert was a place that it wasn't in our minds to be part of our portfolio, part of our vineyard surface. But the owner had some olive trees over there. So mm-hmm. on 2007, actually in February of 2007, we decided to, to go over there to see because in those areas in the world where olive trees gives a nice quality of olives, vines or wines are Should. very good. Should. So let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go and see uh, what is happening. Mm. When we, we were going over there, we were discussing between the viticulturist team and, and the winemaking team that this will be a very warm and, and dry place. So mm. maybe Mediterranean varieties as Grenache, Mouvedre, Carignan could work, mm. or maybe some Bordeaux varieties as Petit Verdot, Cabernet. Mm. But what we didn't know was that this place was almost 25 kilometers from the Pacific Ocean without any range of mountains between the place and the ocean so Mm. it was cold and windy well it's crazy isn't it because where you said that there's no coastal mountains ironically there's two mountains that run transversally right so they act as like a tunnel so not only do you not have a mountain but you just got this thing sucking through even that the wind goes and that's why it's so windy Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because uh, through that corridor that you are mentioning, yeah. uh, the wind comes from the sea through the inland and gets this uh, windy condition in the place where the vineyard is now. Mm-hmm. So at that moment when we arrived there, we arrived at 11 o'clock in the morning in the middle of a very strange and particular phenomenon that happens in the north of Chile. It's called the Kamanchaka. Mm-hmm. The Kamanchaka is a very thick fog that comes twice a day to the inland from the sea at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and then at 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon and gives a special like uh, humidity to the vines mm-hmm. that in other parts of the world uh, you can say but humidity is not as good as uh, other kind of climate because it can give a fungus condition. Not here because it, the environment is so dry that this humidity for these 45 minutes around an hour, it helps a lot. The the different crops, not only the vines, but the different crops in the area to get this a little bit of humid environment to develop. So we arrive at that time, 11 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of this thick fog, in a place where it was 25 kilometers from the sea. So it was cold. Mm. I mean, this is not a place for warm climate varieties or Mediterranean varieties. This is a place for cool climate varieties. And the closest part of the vineyards are about 18 kilometers to the coast. That's correct, right? Yeah, 18 kilometers. That is the newest area that we planted Mm. a couple of years after the first one. You couldn't go any closer than 
18 kilometers to the coast, right? Because any closer, and then it's actually too cold to grow any grapes, right? Yeah, I don't know if people know cool climate, Chilean cool climate. The two most important valleys are Casablanca and Leida. Leida is a place that is more or less 10 kilometers from the Pacific Ocean, and Casablanca is about 25 kilometers from the Pacific Ocean. This is a place that in terms of climate is in the middle of the two of those. So it has an average of 14, 15 Celsius degrees of temperature, uh, maximum temperature between 23, 24 Celsius degrees. And, and the minimum temperature at night goes down at 7, 8 Celsius degrees. So it's definitely cool climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, you talk about cool climate but what fascinates me the most is the soil so do you want to tell yeah, the, us the, all the, a bit the yeah. soil is <laughs> when we arrived there actually we said one day before to some people to make a pit that means a hole in the in the soil to mm-hmm. see what is happening downstairs so when we arrived inside the pit we saw that we were in the second terrace of the Wasco river so we had these round stones there were was many of them in between them there was a, this white kind of soil that is limestone Mm -hmm. so more than the 80 percent of the vineyards in chile are planted in granite soil Mm. so that's the style of what the wines are from chile but to have limestone soil calcium calcarium soil that's very difficult to find Mm. and you know that all the areas in around the world the wine regions that have this kind of soils give amazing wines like burgundy Mm a couple of uh, places in in italy spain Mm -hmm. um, australia sicilia as well Mm. So we were in presence of something unique and very different of what we used to have at that moment in the Ventisquero surface. So we decided to plant the white varieties, Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc uh, and Chardonnay mainly with a little spot of Syrah, Merlot and some Viognier. Mm-hmm. What we didn't see at that moment was... <laughs> yeah, you didn't. <laughs> I mean, this was a kind of, it's struggling us till today, is the amount of salt that was in the soil. Because yeah. the salt that was in the soil wasn't coming from the water it wasn't the soil, struggles the roots and doesn't give the environment for them to develop normally. Mm. So we planted and second year, the plants, the vines were growing normally. So we started to get worried. So we make an analysis to the soil and we detected that there was 10 times the amount of salt of what a vine can support mm. in the science reports. Yeah. But even that, nature opens the road and the vines survive and when you taste the grapes coming from that kind of soil it's really impressive because uh, the character the flavor is so unique yes i can tell you right now no so i've got the tara chardonnay 2016 in my hand right now this is my favorite of the tara wines because actually because of the cloudiness as well the turbidity this is something a little bit more unique because none of these wines are filtered or fined they're made naturally and as you would say it's not that you were intentionally trying to make a natural wine even though they do fit into that category but it's about trying to just do nothing to it really let it let it taste uh, yeah exactly i mean uh, the place was so special the character of the wine so was so unique that uh, giving another kind of complexity, making more intervention through or during the winemaking wasn't the idea. So we decided to stay in the backstage so that Mm -hmm. what you have afterwards in the glass 
is the terroir, is the place that is oh, yeah. talking about and, and not the winemaker style. And that's why the wine is unfiltered. You can see that the white wine is hazy, is cloudy, mm -hmm. is made with native yeast. And then it goes to very old barrels in the beginning. Nowadays it's being made in concrete eggs and foodrus mm. and toasted foodrus so that you can really get the character of the place where the grapes are coming from. Oh, just for me, the saltiness, everybody who tastes this, and of course I can say now, you are left with this slightly saline finish, but it's chalky as well. So you get that chalkiness chalky, yeah, from the limestone soil. You get the limestone saltiness soil. from the salt. It really, yeah. if anyone wants to know what is terroir, what does terroir taste like in a glass? This is stunning. And I always think, I don't know if you remember this because this is many years ago. The Tara Chardonnay, this wine that I'm drinking now, was the first South American wine to be in the top five restaurants voted in the world's 50 best. So I think that's what it's called. Yep. If you go to the world's 50best.com at that time the first five restaurants on that list had the Tara Chardonnay yep. this is the only wine in South America to have done that congratulations Alejandro that you have made a wine so special and so superb <laughs> that you can say that that's amazing uh, we are very proud about that mm. not only because it, it was in those uh, five best restaurants but also mm. because to have the opportunity to ferment these grapes and to have a vineyard over there is really an, an opportunity that uh, maybe other winemakers doesn't have. Yes. And being in the middle of this team working that is working with these grapes is fascinating, really. Mm. And this is not exactly close to Santiago and it's not close to the winery either. I mean, how, no. how long does it take you to get up there? <laughs> this is 850 kilometers northern Santiago, the capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Santiago is two hours northwest from where, where the winery is. So it's about 12 hours ride easily. What we do is to have the grapes in small cases of 10 kilos each. Mm. We put it in a refrigerated uh, truck and then comes along all the way down to the winery. And to be honest as well, you said about 850 kilometers north. This is the most northern commercial winery. I mean, the nearest winery, am I right, is in Elki, which is the next wine region down. Yeah. They're about 300 kilometers further south, right? South, yeah. That's crazy that's that that's the difference. So not only crazy. are these vineyards the most northern vineyards, but they're 300 kilometers further than the other most northern vineyards. <laughs> Actually, we, we moved the boundaries because the old maps of uh, the winemaking yes. regions in Chile didn't have the uh, Wasco Valley in, no. in the map. The maps finished in Elqui. Now the maps have moved to the north of Chile, 300 kilometers north. In fact, you say that if people Google Wines of Chile map, you will see a lot of the old maps on Google Images. Yep, still. So if, for anybody looking, if you look at Elki and there's nothing above it, try and search for the official Wines of Chile map because, yeah, Huasco, which is where it is in Atacama Desert, has now been added on. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, part of the uh, philosophy of uh, Ventisquero Wine Estates is to move the boundaries, uh, mm. not to keep on establishment. Yeah. You know, our idea is always to try to innovate and also extreme places. Extreme places are going to give you always strange wines and that's what we are always looking for. Yeah, I've heard, you know, Birdie's told me that people should pay attention to Ventiscara Wine Estates because at some point there may be some other boundaries being conquered, perhaps. So people mm. should... <laughs> Maybe, exactly. I don't have any information about that. <laughs> Nor do I. I don't know what you are so... talking about. Exactly. Nor do I. <laughs> so um, this beautiful Tara Chardonnay, because you haven't got it, so I'm going to have to... It's actually stunning. And I'm drinking it in a Gabriel 
glass okay. in my favorite. I got some Zalto glasses and I got some, yeah. well, I suppose, Gabrielle glass is probably how you pronounce it. And I've got ah, Gabrielle glass as well. Oh, I must please taste do. Uh, in those kind of glasses. I actually have to say this is proper mouth blown and they're lighter than the Zalto glasses I have. And they're just divine. So anybody who wants okay. to get some special glasses for Christmas, Gabrielle glass. And the Chardonnay is delicious in this. And it's got this real mango intensity. So really tropical fruit, but with such elegance, it doesn't have any of that sweetness. It's just softened by this slightly flinty, chalky nature. Lots of white flowers. It's very pretty. You feel like you are in some perfumed, fragrant field sort of thing. But more importantly, there's a purity on the palette that I just adore it's just soft yeah and i mean flavor is so special that shocky feeling mm-hmm. that uh, persistent in the palate with that saltiness it's also a very nice friend for food it's a <laughs> gastronomical wine definitely mm-hmm. so you really enjoy food with this kind of uh, wine oysters sea arctic uh, mm. kind of uh, oily fish white meats oh. i mean there's lots of a world of possibilities too too much with this kind of wines And also even like some beautiful salmon with kind of some pickled kind of cucumber oh, and I dill. It. I mean, Tara Chardonnay with salmon or uh, uh, smoky salmon, mm-hmm. that's kind of paradise. <laughs> oh, it is paradise. Where is my salmon right now? Um, anyone who wants to know, I can only tell you obviously UK prices, it's about £40 a bottle. This is not a cheap wine, but considering only a few thousand bottles each year are made yeah, and it's so special. Six, six and seven thousand bottles a year for the yeah. Chardonnay, for the whole world. Exactly. You can get in the UK, this is about £40 a bottle from the wine treasury. So anybody who wants to try something very special and unique with a story, then obviously then you want to go there. But we have these in America. The wines are in China. They're in all around Europe because they are so special. A little bit of allocation goes to most places in the world so people can get it. Alejandro, thank you so much. Honestly, just we haven't even touched the surface of how special the Atacama Desert is. But I will ask people listening to contact me if they have any questions because it is really just a magic magical magical place isn't it i mean on the same if there's any technical question that uh, they would like to to know you can pass me as well uh, so mm. i can answer all of them and be very happy to clear all the doubts alejandro loves to be a wine geek so please contact me to contact him and he will definitely you'll regret it he'll give you so much information <laughs> <laughs> we love it and um, thank you so much it's been fab and um, we'll have to do this again sometime when you have a glass of wine in hand yeah thank you very much for the opportunity Janina I mean You're welcome. Uh, it was a very nice conversation and exchanging of information about uh, Ventisquero wine states yeah. wines and I need you to have the opportunity in the future to talk about more wines more harvest and more places why not uh, I think we're gonna have it to be a wonderful time Absolutely. Till the next time, Alejandro. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. So did you know that there were wines being made in the Atacama Desert? Let me know. Where is the most extreme place that you've tasted wine from? Certainly winemakers all over the world are pushing the boundaries constantly. So the wine world just continues to get more exciting. 
Now, I hope you're all writing your lists to Santa. If you fancy a little bit of help in terms of what might be good for a wine lover or for yourself, I've come up with a few things that I think would make somebody very happy. I mentioned those wine glasses, Gabrielle Glass. This is the gold edition I'm talking about. So they're real top one. If anybody is after getting some for somebody, they are £30 a glass. Anybody wanting to push the boat out for a wine lover, a Coravan is an amazing idea. Idea, starting at about £160. This is a piece of equipment that allows you to take wine out of a bottle without opening the cork. So basically it has some argon gas attached as the needle goes into the cork and sucks out the wine. Where oxygen would start obviously oxidising, it replaces that with some argon gas. Very clever piece of kit. So check out a Coravan. And now you can even buy special Coravan screw caps. So this allows you to use the Coravan on a wine with a screw cap, not just for cork. So it's getting more advanced all the time. Go and check out Coravans. And if you're looking for something new and exciting as a Christmas stocking filler, Google Repour Wine Saver. It's basically a bottle stop and it has the ability to suck out the oxygen just because of the material when you put it in the bottle, meaning your wine can last that little bit longer. My good friend Mr Amazon is charging $19.99 for a pack of 10. Now for anybody who is in the mood for giving, do go across to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash eat, sleep, wine, repeat. As I mentioned in the last few episodes, there is extra exclusive content just for you. In this week's episode, it's going to be about some more gadgets, some more gifts, some more ideas for presents and of course presents for yourself and also I will touch a little bit on chili a little bit more of the south and those old vines so if you are enjoying these podcasts for just a couple of quid a month you have access to extra information just for you now as ever thank you for everybody who is sharing these podcasts liking them writing the comments you guys are amazing I spoke to Santa he says you're on the very very nice list so nobody is getting coal this year now to finish off as always not quite a wine quote but more just a tiny section of a wine poem by Pablo Neruda a very influential Chilean poet it's a poem called Ode to Wine do look it up It's really, really long, but I'm going to read just the last part, which I quite like. And it says, drink it and remember in every drop of gold, in every topaz glass, in every purple ladle, that autumn laboured to fill the vessel with wine. And in the ritual of his office, let the simple man remember to think of the soil and of his duty to propagate the canticle of the wine. So as day by day we get closer to Christmas, I hope you have eggnogs at the ready, mince pies to shove in the oven and a cellar, a wine rack or even a kitchen cupboard filled with delicious wine ready to eat, drink and be merry. Sneak preview of the next episode will be on pairing wine with chocolate. And so until the next time guys, cheers to you.